0: Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. This week, Clyde is starting off our new series in Revelation, and it's titled The Incomparable Christ. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we'd love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together.
1: Hello, friends. So glad we can be joined together to worship and receive from our King uh, as we're gathered here and gathered online as well. So good to be together and we're going to be coming God's Word and let it lead us to receive from Christ in the meal of communion. And today we are beginning a new teaching series in our continued study of the book of Revelation, which again was given to us to reveal, to unveil to us Jesus, so that we might understand more fully who He is. Because almost everybody today has something to say about Jesus. And the perspectives about him, not surprisingly, can be quite divergent. So who is this Jesus? Well, one of the main purposes of this book of Revelation is to answer that question. And just to remind us where we're at in our study of this book, we've been looking at the letters from Jesus that were given through John to seven churches around ancient Asia Minor. So as we now move into this next portion of Revelation, it really helps to remember that this entire book is a pastoral letter to those seven churches. Again, some of those churches were following Christ and suffering for their faith. Others of the churches were drifting from Christ. Okay, so with that in mind, let's come to our extended passage today, which is often called the breaking of the seven seals. If you turn with me in your Bible or Bible app, I encourage you to bring one or the other with you as we gather here, and as we come to this, remember, friends, this is a word of God. And this is what we read, beginning in Revelation 5, verse 1. And then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. Which leads us to ask, what is this scroll of just unparalleled significance? And and what are these seven seals? And really, what does all this unveil to us about Jesus? That's what I want to look together at today. And let me just prepare you in this. Our study today is going to be a lot of information, all right, because we are looking at some very complex passages and we really today are laying some foundations for the rest of this book that we're going to be looking at. So please work to stay with me, all right? You might want to take notes. That might be helpful and keep it in line with where we're going. Now, just so you have a, a picture in your mind as we're reading this. Again, we know that in John's day, most long correspondence, like with biblical writings, would have been written on some kind of scroll. And the scroll really was typically kind of a long sheet of parchment, that was rolled up, something like paper towels are in our day, once the writing was complete. So to read the message from the scroll, the document, it had to be unrolled in some sense. And these scrolls, though, they were typically closed with a wax seal. Or if it was even a more significant document, it would be numerous wax seals. It would be placed on the main sections of the scroll. And, and with that wax seal really identifying the ownership of the scroll. So no one could read the document until these hardened wax seals were broken in us. Now, we do know that one of the documents of that ancient day that was sealed in this kind of way was a will, will rather a final testament, really. So we could say that what we have in the scroll that John sees here could be described as a revelation of God's will. And what is going to be unveiled in the breaking of these seven seals are the judgments of God. As each seal is broken, a new judgment is unleashed on earth. And and be sure to catch this, though. The the existence of this sealed scroll really is kind of John's way of saying that everything that has and does and will take place in this world has meaning and purpose. Even though God doesn't cause all things to happen, he causes all things to work together for his good. Because the God of creation is sovereign and he has an eternal plan in all of it. Okay, so when John first has his vision of this scroll and its seals, he responds by weeping. And it's because there's no one to break the seals and open the scroll. So there was no one who could unveil what God's purposes and plans were. No one who could explain what was going on. But among this great throng that he sees... The one who stands there, John hears, is the Lion of Judah. And it is said that the Lion of Judah can open the scroll. But then he hears that, but then he sees that Lion who stands there, and he stands there as a lamb. He's standing as one who had been slain. Now, as we're going to see in the rest of Revelation, that Lion who is the slain lamb, it's Jesus. Jesus. And there is then, in the remainder of chapter 5 here, this celebration. It's really an explosion of worship in heaven because the Lamb who can open the scroll is worthy of all our praise and glory. Okay, and then flowing out of that worship, we read this, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. Let's just stop there. You know, as we move into chapter 6, and really these following chapters of Revelation we're going to be looking at, it is precisely here in the book of Revelation that things begin to get what could be considered confusing. Because we here move into the part of Revelation that's often described as apocalyptic writing. Now, we've talked about apocalyptic writings a bit as we begin this book, which, again, in the original Greek, this book is literally called The Apocalypse to John. So let's just do a quick review of all this. And be reminded that when we hear the word apocalypse or apocalyptic... The images that tend to come to our mind are ones of destruction, of devastation, of chaos, of darkness, evil. In general, it's scary stuff that comes to our mind, stuff that's not good. But the word apocalypse in Scripture, it doesn't mean that. It means to reveal, we saw. It means to unveil. So, the opening words of this book in some English translations are Revelation 1-1, the apocalypse, the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So, this entire book, including the section we're moving into, it is intended, remember this, it is intended above all to unveil, to reveal to us Jesus and his purposes, Okay, so what does it mean to say that the rest of Revelation here is apocalyptic literature? Well, apocalyptic writing, it was really a common form or style in that ancient day, and it wasn't just in scriptural writings that it was used. In apocalyptic literature, you can find some even online and read some non-biblical apocalyptic writings from that ancient day, but you'll see that it uses vivid, at times kind of wild images and language to communicate some kind of significant message of hope and coming victory for those who are enduring suffering and persecution. Okay, now in the Bible, we see examples of this kind of writing in some of the prophetic books, especially in Daniel 7 to 12. And we also see some shorter portions of the New Testament writings that could be deemed as apocalyptic. Now, The fact that the latter part of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, it doesn't mean at all that it's not true. Not at all. It just means, though, and we need to remember this, that we need to interpret it then differently than we would other kinds of biblical writings, such as the Bible's. Historical narratives, we understand interpret those one way. Or what about the letters, like Paul wrote, or the law, or wisdom literature? Each of them we interpret a bit differently. Which leads to the question, so why do people come up with such different interpretations of this book of Revelation? You notice that? And understand, that's been the case for centuries. And, and really, there are primarily four historical views of Revelation. There are really kind of four ways of understanding or interpreting this book and the images and events described in it. And I want to share these so that we can understand why Christ followers can come to very different perspectives on this book even though they all point to Scripture, even though very likely they all come with authentic faith. Now, this might feel a bit technical. I really think it will help, though. And understand, there can be variations of these four views, but these are generally the main four views that we're going to look at together. Now, a first view we could call the preterist view. The preterist view. Now, that word or that name is based on the Latin word praetor, which means past. Okay, simply put. Now... The events described in Revelation, according to this view, they are viewed as just past events that are being described in the book. And so this view believes that Revelation, it's really only describing events, nations, and individuals from John's day. So it's really only about mainly what's being described, the church, in biblical times. So in this view, Revelation really doesn't predict anything that's still in the future for us. Because Revelation was written primarily to provide hope and comfort to the early church as it was being persecuted by Rome. And so John simply describes events that were happening or would happen in that ancient day. Like just for an example of this, that term, the abomination that brings desolation, that's a term that's used in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Jesus refers to it in Matthew 24. Apparently, as we're going to see, it's referred to in Revelation 13. Now, according to this view, that term, the abomination that brings desolation, that's seen as referring to, for example, the pagan leader of that ancient day, Antiochus Epiphanes. And What came to be the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. But John here is then just using symbols and imagery to describe those ancient events. All right? Okay, now there's a second view, and this is a historicist view. So this view would say that the events described in Revelation are unfolding. So for example, this view means interprets revelation as really a symbolic description of church history. That's what they see it as being really from the first century up until the second coming of Christ. So for those who hold this view, typically speaking, they would say about these seven seals that we're going to be looking at, for example, they would say that the first seal was experienced by the early church. And then you move along until like the third seal. That would have been experienced in the medieval period, the church then. And then on up until today, where they would suggest that we are now experiencing the fifth or sixth seal. Now understand, this is a view held by most reformers. John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Wesley, and others held this view. And, And therefore, this view really dominated Protestant eschatological teaching for centuries. Okay, then there's a third view. This is the one many of you are most familiar with. It's called the futurist view. And according to this view, the events described in Revelation are mainly in the future. And really, a literal reading of Revelation will generally lead to this futurist interpretation. So futurists interpret Revelation 6 and on as being really predictive of literal and specific end times historical events that will immediately either precede or happen during or happen shortly after the second coming of Jesus. Now, the thing with this view, although there were some early church fathers who held some kind of variation of this view, it primarily gained popularity in the 19th century and really came out of largely the teaching of John Darby and C.I. Schofield, Schofield Study Bible, if you remember that, and other dispensationalist teachers of that day. That's largely where it came from. So those holding this view, they would be the ones who, for example, would tend to use these very detailed charts and graphs, kind of like this. Maybe you've seen this kind of thing where all the events that are coming in the future are laid out in significant detail, to just give a picture of how the future will unfold right around the second coming of Jesus, all right? Okay, then a fourth view is called the idealist view. And and this is actually also called the symbolic or spiritual interpretation of the book. And and they would say that the events described in Revelation are to be understood as symbolic, really. So this approach argues that the symbols, the images in Revelation, they don't necessarily relate to specific historical events, but rather they're trying to communicate timeless spiritual truths and realities. So idealist interpreters believe that revelation relates primarily to what the church really in all times experiences in this world until Christ returns, which mainly is the battle between good and evil, between darkness and life, in which Christ will ultimately triumph. So Revelation then is about, according to this view, what the church really experiences at all times in church history, and how then we can find hope in the challenges we face. You got it all, right? Okay, I know, kind of a fire hose, but let me tell you, one of the challenges I feel as I approach this book is that there are strengths and really a biblical basis for each of these views. There is. And each view really can offer beneficial insights to us in understanding and following Christ. I think we can learn something from each of these viewpoints. So therefore, I really want to suggest some ground rules, ground rules, let's call it, as we move into this apocalyptic portion of Revelation. All right, let me just touch on three ground rules. Number one ground rule is this it's okay to disagree on this stuff. People of deep faith, serious scholarship and historical backing disagree on certain portions of this book. Okay, then a second ground rule. Ground rule tool is this. While I'll make it clear at certain points what I really believe a passage is teaching and really why I think that, I might be wrong. And I really, I want us to remember this. So could you just turn to the person next to you and say, he might be wrong. All right, go ahead and do it. A little too much enthusiasm on that one. I think you've been waiting for that opportunity, haven't you? But, But let me tell you why we should keep that in mind. There are elements of each of these four views, again, that I find compelling and helpful, and all of which can be supported by different scriptures. But I also find personally that each one of these four views has holes in them. And because that's true, I want you to turn again to the person next to you and say this. I might be wrong about this. All right? Go and do it. That was a lot harder to say, wasn't it? (laughs) Okay, now ground rule three is just this. Over these issues, we will not divide. And I bring this rule up because followers of Jesus do. People divide over their viewpoints of pre tribulation or post tribulation or present tribulation, churches divide over these viewpoints and doctrines. A few weeks ago, if you remember, we went through those three concentric circles we talk about every so often here, about creed, the core stuff we don't change on, then doctrine, and then conviction outside of that, if you recall. And and you need to know this. You need to know that here at Southview, we have very strong positions on creedal teachings, like the deity of Christ, Salvation by grace through faith. The reality of the life to come. So there are things about which we will not budge. But we do not have a rigid position when it comes, for example, to pre- or post- or amillennialism. I mean, we can certainly discuss that together around Scripture, have good discussions. But we are not going to fight over, for example, whether the rapture is before or during or after the great tribulation. But again, I want you to know, we hold firmly to some things regarding end-time theology. And please hear me clearly on this. And what we believe and hold to and can join together in standing on is this. We believe that the risen Jesus Christ will return one day in power and great glory for his blessed bride, for his church. And we believe that his return, it will be visible, it will be personal, and we believe it is imminent. And we believe that there will be a final judgment and that everything that is wrong will be made right. Everything that is crooked will be made straight. And we believe that there will then be this new heaven and new earth where we will, with believers from every nation and every age since the beginning of human history, will enjoy and worship and serve us. The Lion who is the Lamb of God forever and ever and ever. Amen? That's what we believe. But beyond that, history could unfold in a number of ways. There really is lots of room for debate. And so, friends, let me just remind us. When we move into that life to come... It will not matter if the pre-mill, post-millennial view was right. It will not matter. I mean, in the life to come, you will not be high-fiving your fellow pre-millennialists <laughs> and trash-talking the post-mill and ah-mill multitudes. Because we will be consumed with the wonder and joy of him, of Christ. Okay, so with that foundation and those ground rules, we got them all? Just nod at me. <laughs> Let's return then to the seven seals. And again, just remember the context here. John, again, is, he's writing a pastor to followers of Jesus. Again, some of whom have really drifted from their first love of Jesus, and others of whom, are they're discouraged, they're suffering, they're confused, they're wondering why this life with Christ involves so much suffering and persecution just as some of you may be experiencing in your own lives. And they were asking in that day, okay, if if this gospel declares God's love for the world, why are people who believe it being put in prison and nailed to crosses? I mean, if, if Christ lived, suffered, died, and rose again victorious, why does it seem that the world is getting worse and worse, not better and better? To put that all in another way, what in the world is going on, God? That's what they were asking. And again, I think one of the reasons the Holy Spirit gave John this vision and prompted him to write this book was again to answer that question, too. Okay, so with all that in mind, let's return to chapter six. And again, Understand, this is a book to be seen and visualized. So let your mind picture these scenes as I read this passage. Here again is what we've read already. The Lamb, Jesus, he has just opened the first seal of the great scroll. And then we read this, Revelation 6-2. And I looked and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should stay, slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard seemed, what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Oh, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the four seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name Was death and Hades followed him. Pretty clear, right? You know, what we have in this passage are what is known commonly as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which come out of the breaking of the first four seals. And really understand, while there's some debate about what they represent, really most hold that this first horseman on this white horse, that it represents war or military conquest. And John's readers would have known that because when a Roman military commander would return from a victorious conquest, they would ride into the city on a white horse. They knew, they understood that. Okay, now regarding the other horsemen and horses, there's really more agreement about what they represent. The second horseman, the red horse, represents, you could say, general strife. By that, not meaning war, but just the division and strife that, that happens between people in this world. And then this black horse is a symbol of famine, of poverty, of hunger and need. But, but understand this, it's so interesting. The key here is that this famine and poverty it takes place right in the middle of surrounding great wealth. Because look at this. Some have to pay a denarius, and a denarius was about a day's wage in that day. Some have to pay a denarius just for a quart of wheat, while others, they're enjoying oil and wine. And then there's the fourth horse, the pale horse, and that represents, it tells us, death. Death. The four horsemen. But notice something in verse 8 here. The freedom of these four horsemen, it's limited. Look at verse 8. It says, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So they do have authority, but only over one-fourth of the earth. And, and what that means is, and again, this is largely agreed on regardless of which view of revelation you hold. But it really means that these four horsemen and the first four seals; these aren't a picture of the final judgment. They're not that. I mean, what we have here is really a symbol that says, whatever or wherever humanity opposes God, an opposition that really began at the fall of humanity and the sin, judgments are released. Consequences are experienced. Because opposition to God, as this makes clear, it sets off, you could say, a spiritual chain reaction. So human history then is a record of these four horsemen riding roughshod on the earth. And we know this, they've been riding since humanity's fallen to sin. So are they a picture of what was happening in the early church of John? Yes. Yes. Are they a picture of what we experience in our lifetime? Yes, they are. Are they a picture of what is coming in the future? Yes. These four horsemen are riding and will ride until Christ returns. And they ride between nations. You know, history is filled with a record of what these four riders bring. Even today, you read the news of Ukraine, of Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Myanmar, Sudan, and the list goes on of nations where war, terrorism, and brutal conquest are taking place. But know this as well. They don't just ride in faraway places. They ride, too, in high-rise office buildings where decisions are made to ruin people's lives for money, status, or power. They ride every time a little child gets caught in the crossfire of a drive-by shooting. And really, whether you recognize it or not, we heard their thundering hooves again this week as Vladimir Putin brought increased destruction and death to Ukraine. But again, don't be deceived. They ride in the suburbs where the lawns are manicured, where the paint is fresh, where husbands and wives are, are torn apart by strife where hearts are broken, where dreams are dashed, and and wounded children are left wounded and afraid and alone in the wake of it all. Because these four horsemen, friends, they ride wherever people live in fear or despair, hunger or neglect. And one of the struggles for those who worship the Lamb is that these four horsemen seem at times to be riding roughshod on the church as well. And not just in a general sense, like when the rain falls and the just and the unjust, but somehow there's something landing on the church that's even worse than that. We see it expressed even there. And we see that also expressed in the fifth seal. Look again, chapter 6, verse 9. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those Who had been slain, why? For the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, think about those churches in ancient Asia Minor. Think about them reading this. I mean, those words, I believe, without a doubt, would have brought to their minds, for John's original readers, names of people who they knew who lost their lives because they were following Jesus, because They followed the word of God because they had been witnesses for Christ. So does this seal have a future application? Likely so. But the original hearers would have also thought of specific people they knew who were suffering and been martyred for their faith. I mean, in their lifetime, Stephen was stoned. James was beheaded. Many died in awful ways for their faith. And think in our own day. We talked a few weeks ago about the current reality of our world, where statisticians tell us that somewhere around 250 million followers of Jesus across 60 countries experience extreme forms of persecution because they follow Christ and the Word of God. So, this is also a present reality. And this isn't just about Christ followers. I mean, it is gut-wrenching to hear of anyone from any faith being persecuted for their religious beliefs. But we know around this planet, even in our own city, these horsemen of strife, poverty, persecution, and death, friends, they ride in our day. And so the question is, on the hearts and minds of those who experience this kind of suffering. I think it's a question asked in verse 10 here. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, how long must we endure this? And the answer is given in verse 11, where it says, a little longer. You need to wait a little while longer. Relief Know this, deliverance, it's coming, but not yet fully. Even as described in the sixth seal, where we read this, verse 12. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And then the sky just vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And everyone, whether they were kings or slaves (verse 15), hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. So we read that, and he asked a question: Okay, so is that to be understood literally? Probably not. I mean, in part because these images that are described here, they are fairly common ones in Scripture, actually. They are used often to speak of just shocking, shattering events and of coming judgment. And and then we think of this also. If the stars were literally, the stars were literally falling to the earth, who would have time and why would you bother to hide in caves? But we know this. These are the parts of revelation that prompt people to say, I think I'm going to read a different Bible book. Because we read this and we might be asking the question that's expressed right there in verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can endure this? Because you read through these seven seals and we're going to look at the seventh seal next week. And you read of these judgments And it can clearly feel kind of dark, perhaps depressing, possibly discouraging. And so we too ask, even in our day, who in the world can stand? What hope is there? How do you endure all of this as judgment comes? Which is a critical question. And it is a personal question. Revelation 7 tells us that it is those who have been sealed, who will be able through all these calamities and judgments to stand. Look, it's the angel of God who says this in verse 3 of chapter 7. We have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the ones who are sealed, they are the ones who are able to stand. Which, what does that mean again? Again. I mean, is it literally a seal on your forehead? We think often of the seal of the beast, the Antichrist. We talk often of that. We don't talk as much about the seal of God on us. So is this a literal seal you'll get on your forehead? Or could it be that this is a picture of some greater spiritual reality? Well, we remember that the Apostle Paul he uses very similar imagery and language when he says this in Ephesians 1.13. In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were what? Sealed. How? With the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Because our hope for this life and for all eternity, it is found only in the Lamb it is only found by believing in and submitting to the name and person of Jesus and thereby through faith in him, as Paul says, being sealed with and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So let me encourage you and ask you today. So do you need hope? Do you need assurance? I mean, do you want true life now and for eternity? you find it in him. You will find it in the lamb who is slain. So before we receive from him in this meal of communion, can I give you a moment to respond to him? Will you just bow your heads with me? And I want to just invite you to call out to Jesus, even right now. Maybe, maybe it's thanksgiving in silent prayer you want to express to him. Maybe it's confession. Maybe it's repentance or some supplication you want to lift to him. Because we believe, friends, that God still prompts us. He still speaks to us. He still nudges us through the Holy Spirit. So how is God prompting you right now? And I invite you to respond to him just in a silent prayer. And, oh, Father, we do cry out to you with those two prayers we see in this book. How long, oh, Lord, must we wait? And who can stand in this? And how we thank you for the gift you have given us of deliverance, hope, assurance, eternity in him, in Jesus. And, Father, I pray even now as we come to receive this meal from him, Father, we come with thanksgiving That as we break this bread together, we remember his body broken for us. Not in a symbolic way, but literally in history. We thank you as we lift this cup, we remember his blood truly being poured out for us. That we might have hope and assurance. So we come to this now and pray, Father, by your grace, through your spirit, would you cause this bread and cup to be spiritual food for us? We receive it in his name and all God's people say... Amen. So friends, I invite you to receive from Christ as your heart is for him. If you'd take out that cup and just tear back that top portion to hold on to the piece of bread. Let's wait till we've all received it or have it here. And again, who is our hope, our assurance in the day of poverty or strife, of conquest? division, our hope is in him because the body of Christ was broken for you. Take and receive from him. And if you would take the cup. We come to this cup wanting to receive from him, but also wanting to remember of the day and the time to come when we will receive and take this with him again in the life to come. And we have that hope because the blood of Christ was poured out for you. You drink and receive. Amen. Amen. And friends, picture this before we sing to our king. Can, can you imagine this? Just listen. This is Revelation 7:14. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, "Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever." and ever. Amen. You will see angels fall prostrate before Jesus. So let's therefore close this time by singing to him and lifting our praise to him as Marcus and the team lead us. Let's stand and sing to our king. glad you could be here, friends. And again, if you are a newcomer visitor, encourage you to go by the Newcomer Center just to receive a small gift. It's great to have you here. Also remind you, this gathering isn't over. Now's the time to be able to hang out together, welcome someone you haven't seen in a while perhaps, and encourage you to come back next weekend as we look at seven trumpets together and what in the world they mean. So hope you can come back. But as you walk into whatever this week is going to hold for you, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of his Holy Spirit this week, you may abound in hope. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's walk in that grace. Amen.